This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. And this week, I'm very excited because we are finishing up actually four shows on Rothbard's epic uh, two-volume, An Austrian History of Economic Thought. We spent a lot of time going through volume one and just talking about this book in general. And it's really almost a treatise by Rothbard in a sense. But uh, we are going to spend one show on the second volume, The Classical Economics. And there's a lot there. Obviously, there's several hundred pages, so we can only touch on the the biggest topics. But uh, we really enjoyed last week having a pretty robust discussion and a slight defense of Adam Smith by our great friend Hunter Hastings and by uh, Jonathan Newman. So we enjoyed that. There's a lot here. And as I've mentioned to listeners before, you know, for a non-economist like myself, this is really enjoyable reading. There's a lot of history here. There's a lot of philosophy. You get a lot of religion uh, because Rothbard was such a great historian and really a sociologist in many ways. So I like reading this sort of thing more than I in, like uh, Man, Economy, and State, for example. I find this a lot uh, zestier and uh, I thought there'd be nobody better to bring on for this last show than our own Dr. Joe Salerno, who is, of course, known to many of you as the uh, uh, academic honcho here at the Mises Institute, but also a personal friend and a colleague somewhat of Murray Rothbard during his lifetime. So all that said, Joe Salerno, welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here, Jeff. Well, I noticed you're actually mentioned in the acknowledgments to uh, these two volumes. Did, yeah. did you recall that? Yes. Yeah. Much to my delight. Uh, there were a few few small points that I touched on in my dissertation that Murray Rothbard picked up on. Uh, and I was exu- you know, I was just elated that he that, you know, it helped him. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I discussed the introduction to this book with Patrick Newman a few shows back. And we talked about there's a polemical element to this, of course, no question about it. Uh, but what intrigued me you know, he's he just browbeats Smith. He beats up on Smith a lot. But what intrigued me about rereading the introduction was that this idea that uh, economics began with Adam Smith and before that it was just sort of a blank slate and that, there was, you know, Adam Smith rose out of the ether and Rothbard attacks that. And I think that's important because if you look at other histories, including Schumpeter's, um, there's not as much thought given to ancient times into medieval times. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, Rothbard read very, very widely when he was preparing for this book. And, uh, he, you know, he found that pe- that back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, this whole idea that there were a few great men who, uh, you know, as you say, come out of the ether and advance economics was really a fallacy. And that, um, in fact, even the smaller thinkers had a lot to contribute, um, you know, at crucial points. And that there was a continuity um, in economic thought. It wasn't always upward, onward, and upward. In, in fact, many times it was not. He says that there was, you know, zigs and zags, moving forward and then taking steps back. So um, I think it's a tribute to Rothbard's tremendous scholarship that that he he recognized the flaws in in, in the uh, few great men approach to the history of thought. Well, of course, those zigs and zags are opposite of the Whig theory. He actually brings up this work uh, by Thomas Kuhn, with which I am totally unfamiliar, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. So uh, talk about that. What's wrong with the Whig theory? Well, the Whig theory, Kuhn's point was that um, even 
the natural sciences do not progress as the Whig theory tells us, that is that onward and upward into the light. Um, in fact, what happens is that there is a certain paradigm that develops, certain questions that are asked, um, let's say with Newtonian physics as an example, and then something happens. There, there are people discover waves, um, uh, and, and suddenly there's a, there's a question that can't be answered within what Kuhn, uh, Kuhn called the, um, the uh, prevailing paradigm. So th that, that's an anomaly. Suddenly we have what they call extraordinary science. We, we have to go outside the existing paradigm and uh, look for answers elsewhere. And in doing that, we come up with a, another paradigm, uh, you know, Einstein's the theory of relativity. But this idea, it seems like we still have this today. You hear a lot of talk about the new economics. You hear people like Piketty attacking uh, everything we understand about capital, for example. And you wonder if there isn't a little bit of this blank slateism still around. In other words, every generation seems to have this hubris that it's discovering something. And of course, you know, we have the internet. We have the ability to translate every language. What, you know, Rothbard's talking about eras where not only were people geographically remote, and without the internet and the ability to communicate so that uh, economic theory could be developing in one part of the world and people in another part of the world would be totally uh, uh, unawares of this. But also, it's interesting how Murray points out the linguistic difficulties. I mean, if somebody was writing something in English, a lot of the world couldn't read that. That's right. And it was especially true of England itself, of Great Britain. Uh, the uh, British economists were not well versed in, in other languages. So um, not only were they insular because they were on an island, but they were figuratively insular because of the language barrier. Whereas the French, German, uh, and other economists, Italian uh, on the continent, um, were tended to be more multilingual and to read uh, in English also. Yeah, that's so interesting because if you recall, people listen to our show on Manger's Principles. Gosh, wasn't that something like 70 years before that was translated uh, from the original German into English? Yes. So it was 1871 when it was published and uh, it, it wasn't translated until the 1930s. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the 19, early 1950s. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in a sense, we have less of an excuse today for our blinders because we have all of this information at our fingertips. And, and, um, but yet at the same time, from what I'm told anyway, uh, econ PhD programs may have less history of economic thought than ever. They, they, they have almost zero. Um, in that sense, the uh, you know economics programs, PhD programs, ape the physical sciences. Uh, all that counts is, is uh, are the latest journal articles, the last five to ten years. Um, that's how you get published by citing these articles, showing that you've mastered them, and 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 making tiny, tiny, you know, fine tunings and developments of of these articles. And uh, this is what they want. They want us to be um, little dentists. They don't want big thinkers. They don't want visionaries um, that with the, the barrier you know, set up by mathematics and this whole idea of, of the latest journal articles. You, you don't get radical changes and radical developments in, in economic science in the mainstream. So does that mean that in the profession itself or certainly in Ph.D. candidates, people are not going back and writing, you know, revisiting Marx and writing about some error there or, or revisiting Mises and write, you know, extrapolating on that. In other words, people want to talk about sort of the latest, greatest stuff, which is plumbing or behavioral economics or whatever it might be. Yeah, no, that, that, that's true. So again, it, 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 was a, it was a conscious decision um, made in the 60s and 70s when sort of the model building 
uh, came in where you, you would uh, you know just have a few variables and and you'd build the model and you try to explain some phenomenon that you you, you observe. Um, why why did why would you need to go back to Smith or or Marx or um, Valras or or the Austrians like Menger and so on? Um, the the people that that you know control the profession and are they're those that that you know are in graduate programs and and have connections to to, to journals. Um, they they completely um, turn their back on on history of economic thought. Well, after the introduction, he actually opens this second volume, which is Classical Economics, Volume Two. Most of us think of Smith and his uh, uh, successors when we hear that term, but he opens it actually talking about the Frenchman Jean Baptiste Say, and he de- gets into Say's Law of Markets, and of course Say's Law and, and discussions of production uh, loom large in the Austrian tradition. So. Uh, talk, tell us a little bit about this, uh, about Say's law, about production versus consumption, and this idea that there's not some sort of market failure over production. I mean, Say had some insights, certainly, from which we can benefit, but then uh, but the very title of the chapter, The French Tradition in Smithian Clothing, suggests Murray's not entirely sold. Uh, right. First of all, Murray's not sold on the fact that Say's only and largest contribution was Say's law. I mean, that is a... Both Mises and Murray pointed out that that was a, a minor contribution. It was sort of clearing the deck so that you could do economics. It was intro- it was showing that things are scarce, that there can't just be some sort of absolute overproduction. Um, so Say's point was that there was overproduction in certain markets, that there are entrepreneurial errors. And this goes back to Say advancing far beyond Smith without saying he did by introducing the entrepreneur. So immediately there's uncertainty. There are people producing for future markets and they can miscalculate um, what consumers demand more and what they can demand less and produce more of, let's say, large SUVs when consumers are moving towards uh, smaller cars or electric mm-hmm. cars. And so, yes, there's uh, in that industry, there's a crisis. There, there are prices fall below costs and we have layoffs and so on. But that is not general overproduction. That's just the misallocation of resources that the market will eventually, by the change in prices and profits and losses, will correct. Well, as a lay person, I think of Say's Law in terms of production precedes consumption, this idea that production is demand for consumption because anyone who has a job or a business obviously produces things to go out and, and earn money to buy things other than the good or service which they produce. So it, it seems like the import here is that since uh, Keynes came along in the 1930s, there, there seems to be this demand-side mania that the entire purpose of government, the entire purpose of fiscal and monetary policy is to stimulate demand, when in fact we all know we have unlimited demand for stuff. The question is whether we have the productive capability to create the wealth that gives us the power to go out and buy it. No, absolutely. So, um, you know, production comes first in the sense that um, the goods that are produced are then, you know, in, in a modern economy, then sold for money. So the production is the source of the demand for the goods that the person who specialized in producing those goods in the first place desires to obtain. So, yeah, yeah I mean, so Say's law is, is focused on that production is primary, that that, that comes first, um, and that it's after that, that that demand arises on the part of those people who have exchanged the, the, the goods they produce for the general medium of exchange. Well, 
to be fair to say, this is perhaps not as uh, obvious as it seems to us. He's writing this in the early 1800s, but also I see uh, economists like Per Byland, who's pretty active on Twitter. I mean, there are still plenty of economists and plenty of folks on the left who, who flat out deny Say's law today. Well, that, yeah, that's true. I mean, and they uh, they use um, Keynes's definition of Say's law that supply creates its own demand. But I, you know, as uh, William Hutt, who uh, was a, a follower of Mises, not not a full Austrian, pointed out that supply creates its own demand for things, other things, not for the things that you're producing. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't sound as dumb as Keynes didn't quote the whole passage in which, you know, the, the phrase applied. Well, again, so much of this uh, Rothbard's uh, second volume here hinges around Adam Smith and his followers. And chief amongst them is, of course, David Ricardo, well known as the classical economist, uh, and Murray goes so far as to call it the Smith-Ricardo vision that he synthesized Smith. And, it, you know, we were talking before offline about Mencken. I got a little bit, this sounded a little Mencken-esque. Uh, Murray Rothbard describes him as the Spanish-Portuguese Jew turned Quaker. <laughs> so <laughs> so Murray always manages to uh, go after the pietists and the reformists. And in, in a sense, he couches Ricardo in those terms. Yeah. So one one thing we we have to keep in mind is that Smith at least focused on wealth, on things that were useful to human beings. He didn't focus on subjective side of economics, but but he, he came near it by talking about wealth. Um, the, that is the things that we actually use. He, he showed that that was not merely money. Um, but when you get to Ricardo, Ricardo twists it, and and his focus is on explaining how a given wealth, where Smith was talking about the how do we increase wealth, Ricardo was talk, talked about how a given wealth can be distributed among these macro classes, among the landlords, uh, laborers, and, 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 and the capitalists. So we think of him, I think it, uh, most of us today, we think of like the law of comparative advantage, for example. Uh, and I would suspect a lot of people would say, would group Ricardo along with Smith as a free market guy or capitalist guy as a result. So are we wrong here? No, Ricardo was free market. But to go back to the law of comparative advantage, which is the explanation of of uh, the benefits from international trade, um, it wasn't really Ricardo who discovered that law. Rothbard points that out in, in, a, in a brilliant section. He points out that Ricardo only had three paragraphs on on this in his principles. It's the only time he ever talked about the law of comparative advantage. Um, it was really James Mill, who Rothbard pointed out was sort of the Lenin to to Ricardo's Marx, who kind of pushed him to, to put those three paragraphs in. And in fact, James Mill, years before Ricardo wrote his principles, um, came up with, with the idea of comparative advantage. Uh, and then a little bit later, Colonel Torrens did the same thing. So they are, are really the discoverers of this very, very important principle. Um, Ricardo sort of repeated it pro forma in, in his principles in three paragraphs and then dropped it, never talked about it again. Yeah, that's interesting. James Mill, who does get a thorough treatment uh, in this volume, is sort of one of those non-great men. In other words, people who didn't make much of a mark historically, but Rothbard considers important. So I think that's one of the delicious things about this book is you get, uh, you know, revisionism to an extent, which I love. Uh, But also, Ricardo develops or at least fully accepts uh, this, the labor theory of value, the cost of production or whatever theory of value. And in that sense, 
he is boosting Smith and and Rothbard at the end of his treatment at Smith, volume one goes so far as to say, you know, this is how you end up with Marx is once you accept this, um, that's the fatal error. Yeah. Once you accept that labor is the only factor that produces value, uh, then the, the question becomes, even though Ricardo himself was a, a free marketeer, um, the question then becomes, uh, if labor is the sole um, producer of value, then why doesn't it obtain the whole product? Why doesn't, why doesn't it acquire the whole product? Why is there a deduction for land uh, and, 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 and for, for capital? Because, again, according to Marx and, and according to Ricardo, um, capital is really just frozen labor. So it's past labor. Okay. So, so that was Ricardo. Ricardo would argue that with Marx, but Marx would simply say, well, it's frozen labor, but th- then therefore they should get the whole product. But Ricardo doesn't necessarily think frozen labor is exploitative. No, no, he, he, not, uh, unlike Marx, he does not. He does see a function for the capitalist saving and um, building up capital to employ on land to produce more more output more more corn which is really all agricultural products for um for basically for the working classes so what if the return on capital falls so low and in ricardo's system it's supposed to continually fall as rents rise and therefore wages rise mm-hmm. rents rise because you're using more and more inferior land um, as population grows, and then um, as as you use inferior land, you have to use more labor on it. So the cost, the labor cost, or uh, or uh, value of uh, corn goes up, and therefore laborers need higher wages. So as wages and rents go up, um, the capitalist return, the return to the capitalist falls, and it, it falls towards you know zero. But at some point, it becomes so low the capitalist will no longer invest. Um, in, in, in additional production. Well, if all of this is somewhat derivative, maybe, is the word on Ricardo's mm-hmm. part, why is he so famous? In other words, he's almost as famous as Adam Smith, it would seem to me, as a, again, as a lay perspective. Um, Ricardo, I, I think uh, the answer to that question is that he is a system builder. He's built a huge system. It's a closed system. It's um, very interesting to explore and it can be applied to almost any question. So when you build a system, you know, it's applicable to, to, to any question. It, it, it's not piecemeal, whereas, uh, let's say, Smith's writings um, were, were sort of chaotic, right? They were, uh, they were historical insights mixed with some theory, um, and Ricardo avoided that. He was a, a very, very abstract. And this, Marx picked up on that. Marx was, And I think that's one of the reasons that Rothbard treated both of them in such depth, because Murray Rothbard himself was a system building builder, but but he built a true a, a system that we would say is true. Whereas Marx and and Ricardo went up, you know, they began with false premises and they never dropped those premises. Well, the other thing you get from reading Rothbard, of course, is the the personal touches you learn about these people, and and I think it's always a mistake to completely try to sever. Uh, the, the man or the woman behind the ideas and the ideas themselves. That's it just, that's not the way the world works. So it's interesting how at the beginning of the sections on Ricardo, Murray Rothbard points out he's one of 17 kids, which must've been quite a thing back there. And he was actually disinherited for marrying outside his Jewish faith. So that's, and, and of course, I think became uh, financially successful as well. He was very, yeah, very financially successful. I think he retired in his forties. Um, he was a stock broker, uh, which back then it simply meant he bought and sold government bonds. 
uh, because there weren't any any shares of, of private corporations. Mm-hmm. So we take away from Ricardo that he's a system builder. Is he? Does he deserve his place in uh, economic history? He deserves his place as someone who um, took a few incorrect premises and ran with them to their absurdly logical conclusion. Um, so it's, I think it's important to study Ricardo and know Ricardo and know why he's wrong and to show that when you have a deductive system, a system where you, you proceed step by step to deduce um, certain theories in economics, that if you start from false premises, if you start from the fact that production's absolutely fixed, there's no change in technology, and that there are three macro classes of, of, of producers, then you're going you're to you know, run into bedlam. You know, your system is, is going to be completely disconnected to the real world, and, uh, which was the case with Ricardo and Marx, of course. Well, as we move into this second volume, we get into chapter seven on the currency school, which is really fascinating to me, simply because those of us who are interested in Austrian economics, we've we've read a lot about Mises. We've most of us have read Guido Holzman's uh, Last Night of Liberalism, the great biography. And so we have a sense from that reading about the historical school, the German historical school out of which, the, you know, the Austrian school in, in part uh, rose as a reaction. Uh, and of course, we've, we've read a lot about the currency school versus the banking school. So this is all happening in that sort of mid 1800s. So it, maybe you can give us the Joe Salerno quick and dirty on the currency school versus the banking school for starters. Yeah. So what happened was that um, after England went back to the um, gold standard uh, in 1821, uh, they thought everything would be fine and dandy. Um, that we would we would not have uh, you know the inflation that 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 afflicted Great Britain from 1797 to 1821 when they were on a, a paper standard. Um, well, that wasn't quite true. There was some inflation. Um, there was a a, a recession in in 1825 1826. Um, these recessions were repeated in 1836, and then. Uh, uh, for every 10 years after that for, for a number of, of, of decades. Uh, so the, the, the question then arose, look, we're back on a gold standard. Why, are we still, why do we still have bouts of inflation and recession? So the currency school, consisting of uh, Robert Torrens, um, uh, Lord Overstone, uh, and um, a guy named Norman, um, they realized that the gold standard is not enough. What is required is that the supply of money moves exactly as would the supply of money under a, what they called a purely metallic standard, a gold coin standard. Because the currency in Great Britain at that time, even though all paper was convertible into gold, uh, consisted of bank deposits, currency notes, and gold coins. So since it was fractional reserve banking, um, when gold flowed out of the country, um, let, let's say there's 10% reserves. So if, if a certain amount of gold flowed out of the country, the the um, change in the money supply would be 10 times that, right? So you'd, mm -hmm. you'd have a fall in the money supply uh, tenfold the, the amount of gold. And and the currency school said that's that was a problem, okay? So, or if gold came into the country, flowed into the country, the money supply would expand not just by that amount of gold, but let's say 10 times that amount of gold. And that is what brought about the inflation. And then later on, when when the um, gold flow reversed or, you know, other things interrupted the gold flow, uh, at that point, you'd have the recession. 
So what was the currency school's remedy to that? The currency school said what we need to do is to ensure 100% banking from here on in. Um, But of course, they only applied that to currency notes. They did not apply that to checking deposits. And that was the, the big flaw in their program. So if let's just look at currency notes. So if one a gold downs flowed into a country, then one one note that represented that gold downs that would be the increase in the money supply. So if I I, I put it to my students in the following way, um, if you look at the states in the United States, states in the same currency area, we never have balance of payments crises. We never have. Um, uh, inflation from one state to the next. So if when, when uh, let's say, uh, the Midwest um, l- reduces its demand for money because its income is going down because, you know, it, its um, auto factories have shut down, steel factories have shut down, and suddenly um, you have an increase in, in um, uh, output in California, let's say in Silicon Valley, the money shifts from Michigan, let's say, to, to California. But it's dollar for dollar. There's no excess expansion in California and excess deflation in Michigan. There's simply a shift in in money that reflects a shift in in productivity from one state to another. And so that's what the currency school wanted the whole world to look like. Okay. And so, what? How, how does the banking school differ? Most of the banking school believed in the gold standard. But, but they believe that whenever excess notes were issued, um, they would be returned to the bank. There was something called the law of reflux. So what they pointed out was that, look, um, if there's an increase in, in output in the economy, um, we need more, more money to finance that. We need more money to finance the additional capital and investment. And that will the banks will expand, expand the, the, um, the notes. If they expand notes too much on the base of the gold, then those notes will be returned to the bank, okay, almost immediately and automatically. So um, that that the currency school uh, objected to. Uh, they said no. That's this still leaves room for for inflation, mm-hmm. uh, because every time you 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 increase the amount of notes in the economy, prices go up. So that if you want to borrow to buy the same goods, you have to borrow more. So that can cause a, a, a cumulative inflation. And as this battle was going on, especially in England, people weren't using the term fiduciary media at the time, if, I, if I'm correct. No, they, they, were, they were just talking about deposits and um, the, the, the big they, they talked about a mixed currency, which was the, the notes, deposits and um, the uh, gold and versus a metallic currency. So the currency school didn't want 100 percent gold coins. But they wanted all of their currency notes, a Bank of England currency notes, backed up by mm-hmm. by gold. But they left out deposits. So, th- so when when Peel's Act was um, passed in 1844, which should have been the triumph of the, the currency school, uh, they split the Bank of England into two departments. Uh, on the one hand, was an issue department. So, anytime a, 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 a currency note, a Bank of England um, currency note, was issued. They had to have the equivalent amount of gold flow into the economy or flow into into their coffers. Okay, but they left the issue department, uh, the uh, banking department, free. That is, the um, the other department could could issue uh, checking deposits, um, you know, in exchange for um, IOUs from businesses. And so you still had inflations and you still had recessions, um, even though in 1844 the the uh, 
the Appeals Act was passed, um, you had recession in later in eighteen in the eighteen forties, then in the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, and every single time they repealed, they they suspended Peel's Act, which meant that they allowed the Bank of England to produce notes without the uh, equivalent gold backing. Well, that's interesting because in th- this parallels some of the. Uh, questions we still raise today. In other words, there's a lot of economists and, and some on the left, like Nomi Prince, who say how important it is to separate deposit banking from investment banking under the same umbrella, let's say, uh, you know, Bank of America. So that's that's interesting. But also this whole debate, not, it's not one-to-one, but it presages in free market circles uh, the m- much more recent debate over free banking versus frac- versus 100% reserve banking. That's true. In, in fact, you know, I wrote an article um, back in 2012, I believe, and it was called uh, Ludwig von Mises as Currency School Free Banker. And my point was that, yes, it is true that Mises was a free banker, but that the, um, the, free, the modern free bankers confuse means with ends. M- Mises was a free banker, not because he wanted a great deal of currency or not because he wanted to offset an increase in demand uh, for money with an increase in supply, but precisely because he believed that if you had free banking, um, that you would you would approach a system in which you had 100% reserves for both currency and and, and checking accounts. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that what what I question is if this idea, uh, which free bankers promote, which is essentially that because of market discipline. Uh, free banks will not be overly inflationary. Doesn't that assume, though, that these are private issuers? And when you have a central bank, a governmental central bank behind it, that strikes me as a flaw in this whole argument. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, but but Mises was a, a genuine free banker. He did not want a central bank. He wanted banking to, to um, progress to the point where it was simply um, like any other business, any other industry, where the government did not bail anybody out, where the banks had to fulfill their contracts or become insolvent. Mm-hmm. And of course, you, for many, many years, you, uh, Pro- Professor Hoppe and others have gone back and forth with some uh, contemporary free bankers like Larry White, uh, George Mason, and uh, George Selgin at Cato. So there was a lot of back and forth on this. This is something you're very, very versed in. But I mean, they, in theory, uh, the Selgins and Whites of the world are talking about a system. I just want to give them credit. They're talking about a system of private issuers, which today is sort of like talking about a unicorn. No, absolutely. They were talking about a purely uh, private banks and, uh, to, you know, to give them their due. However, their their belief was that um, progress in free banking would mean that people would come to trust the, the, the fiduciary media by the banks and they would begin to use only uh, the, the notes of the banks and the deposits of the banks and 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 begin to to um, not use gold and that gold would more or less lose its place in the system. The banks would only use it as a clearing asset and then after a while they they wouldn't use it at all so that you'd have almost a private fiat currency. Whereas Mises looked forward to the opposite occurring if if you gave free banking its head. Yeah, but it's interesting though um, if we did have true free banking if we had all kinds of private issuers competing. It still strikes me that the the best thing, especially for a global economy, would be to have something win out, which was backed by gold. In other words, people still understand gold and that that would form the basis for a currency that people would accept widely and globally. I mean, it's it's this isn't the Wild West. It's not the 1800s where, you know, town to town, you might have a different bank issuer. 
No, I, I agree. I mean, you, you have big banks. There's nothing wrong with having large banks um, as long as they fulfill their contracts and they're not bailed out by government. Uh, you don't have uh, suspensions of, of uh, giving them special privileges not to pay off their depositors for three uh, for a month or three months or a year where they would have to immediately pay out the gold and or the silver or whatever other market commodity um, the market itself chose. So do you think that the modern system in which we find ourselves obviously complete uh, severability from any gold standard or redemption standard under you know Nixon, which is a long time ago now, 50 mm -hmm. years, um, is this basically uh, the banking school run amok? Well, in a way it is. I mean, though, the, remember, the bank school, most of them did believe in um, in, in tying the currency to gold. Um but it's 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 more the inflationary wing of the banking school who thought that we don't even need gold. Um, the 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 needs of trade would automatically regulate the the, the money supply. Um, and it's by the way, the currency school is sort of implicated in this because in their solution, they did want a central bank. They did outlaw issue of notes by private banks, and but allowed the Bank of England to issue. Um, notes okay so so they, they gave them a monopoly so that whole model of having a, a monopoly note issuer which we have throughout the modern world now unfortunately did come from the the banking uh, the currency school excuse me so but now with all the benefit of hindsight is it fair to say that the only uh, group of economists who have truly stood by the idea of a private issuer all these years is the austrians right in other words austrian economists are the ones who talk about uh, a, a true gold standard and true full reserve banking. Yes, that, that's true. I mean, some Austrian economists, uh, you know, are again free bankers for different reasons. Um, some are like myself, or for, for Misesian reasons. That is, we want we want free banking because we want an approach to 100% gold standard. But others, like Selgin and and, and White, uh, believe that you'll what, what free banking will bring you is basically fiat bank private fiat money. What do you think of this idea that in the marketplace, what if banks were a little better at disclosing what they do? Because I think when the average Joe or Jane goes and makes a deposit in a new bank with a check and gets a you know, checking account or whatever, they don't realize that they're basically an unsecured creditor uh, to that bank. But nonetheless, what if banks really disclosed it and said, disclosed and said, okay, here's, you can get a warehouse receipt for your money. We'll keep it in full we won't lend it out, but you're going to have to pay us a few points just for the security or the, the vaulting or, you know, today a digital right. system. That's fine. Yeah. Versus the idea that if banks were simply open about this and said, hey, look, you know, we're, we, we take your money and we, uh, d along with other depositors, we engage in all kinds of super risky financial dealing. We, in, in, you know, we uh, invest in subprime mortgage tranches or whatever it might be. Uh, and as a result of that, your deposit with us isn't really very secure. It might go to zero, but, you know, you're going to get 12% interest, unlike that less than 1% you're getting on your CD over at, at uh, State Bank. So, I mean, this is kind of a free banking argument, right? In other words, that there'd be uh, risky banks and safe banks and everything in between. Right. Right. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think that the argument is is ridiculous um, because a, a medium of exchange is supposed to be something that everybody will generally accept. If you have different banks, banks that have different risk, uh, you know, risk um, for their portfolios, uh, those those notes are going to fluctuate in value against one another. 
so it, 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 not you're not going to be able to go to, to get people to accept the notes beyond the clientele of that of that bank. Now, mm-hmm. one interesting um, or uh, institution is the Money Market Mutual Fund, in which they all um, invest in very very safe um, assets, uh, but even there, th- there's a chance that, you know, some, some, some of the, the commercial paper could go bad that they're investing in. And, uh, you know, so that's why money market mutual funds really, you know, their, their funds, the checks that you write on money market mutual funds are actually written on a bank. Mm-hmm. So uh, people look on money market mutual funds, not merely as cash, but, but as an investment, a very safe one. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though, no matter what governments do, no matter what central banks do, the market finds a way. And I think you can find an example of this. You can go to the former Rhodesia, go to Zimbabwe today, and you'll find merchants are very accepting of both dollars and euro and are very facile and quick uh, with their uh, currency exchanges, you know, for particular goods. And this is true in Turkey as well. You go to the markets in Istanbul. I mean, the the dollar and the euro are the least dirty shirt in the laundry right now. And, uh, you know, this idea that you can issue currency and have it accepted um, when you really get into reality, it, it doesn't bear out. No, it doesn't. In fact, what Mises pointed out is that you know all firms sustain business need goodwill, but especially banks. As soon as what Mises pointed out is is this: it's not no matter what how many re, what proportion of, of reserves the banks keep, eighty percent can be very very high. If people lose faith in their ability to convert their notes and deposits into gold, at that point. The, the moneyness of their um, deposits and so on disappears. Mm-hmm. So the, the special right. goodwill disappears. Yeah. Well, before we get into these, uh, the several chapters that uh, make up the second half of this volume on Marx, I, I just want to take a quick stop at John Stuart Mill. I thought you'd find this interesting, Joe. Uh, you know, people who aren't economics majors or economists like myself, I mean, my introduction to Mill in college was always in terms of his political theory. Of course, everyone read On Liberty. I still have my dog-eared copy of that book from undergraduate. But, you know, we didn't hear much about John Stuart Mill as a uh, monetary economist or a theorist in economics. Yeah, well, I, I didn't either until I until I uh, became an economics major in, in college, uh, Um and you know he mill was a member of the banking school um he defined the money supply in a very weird way uh, include to include all coin and uh, deposits and and so on plus the creditworthiness of borrowers so he he pointed out that when when uh, banks loaned unbacked deposits to uh, to to borrowers um the creditworthiness went down Right, because they they were in, in greater debt, which meant that there was no change in the money supply. Mm-hmm. So he had mm-hmm. a, a, an interesting twist on on the banking school, um, uh, so that it wasn't it wasn't an increase in money supply that 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 caused inflation. It was what he called overtrading. You know, spe- speculators um, investing in certain kinds of commodities and so on. Well, he reminds me of a lot of current thinkers who are trying to redefine money as energy or collaboration or all these other goofy things that aren't commodities because he talks about money's unimportant and this idea that money is a veil. And what it does is it obscures for us what's really happening in the economy with labor or capital or whatever. And it strikes me as, well, well, I, we have to calculate, first of all. And if you're going to calculate, you need a unit. Um, 
And so it, it strikes me from reading Rothbard on John Stuart Mill, this is kind of gibberish. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he's known as a great thinker, but, uh, I mean, you know, his whole idea that, that money is a veil, well, two things. One, you know, money is a veil, and therefore it hides the real processes of the economy. So he's completely severed the monetary economy to, from, from the real economy. And, and, and the second thing that I, you know, we can consider gibberish is just right before um, uh, Menger wrote and, and we had the marginalist revolution um, and, and we had a new value theory introduced, Mill told us that, uh, that all further work on, on, on value theory was unnecessary because the last word had been said on value theory. That is, the, you know, the classical uh, labor theory or cost of production theory of value was, was the f final word. Yeah, well, I'll just leave our listeners with this. This is uh, at the end of the book, Rothbard has a bunch of really great little bibliographical essays where he talks uh, about some of the books and suggests some further reading. And it's very Rothbardian in the sense that it's lively and it's fun to read. But uh, he has this quote about Mill. He says, quoting him, it is difficult to think of anyone in the history of thought who has more, been more egregiously and systematically overestimated as an economist, as a political philosopher, as an overall thinker, or as a man than John Stuart Mill. So that's pretty Rothbardian, Joe. Yeah, here, here. I agree. <laughs> well, Marx. I mean, Marx is a whole subject you could tackle for weeks and weeks. Uh, I guess, first and foremost, it's telling to me that he includes Marx in a volume called Classical Economists, which I suppose is Rothbard's way of telling us that this is the tradition under which Marxism falls. Absolutely. I mean, Marxism goes, I mean, Marx was a Ricardian, was a Ricardian. And Ricardo um, took a lot of, of what, what he put into his system from Smith. So, you know, Marx is in the line of Smith and, 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 and Ricardo. No, no doubt about it. But when you're on Twitter today, let's say, and someone brings up classical economics or neoclassical economics, either one, you get the sense that they don't include Marx in that. Yeah, right. So so Marx in, in the um, the great men approach to the history of thought, Marx is, is not doesn't quite fit in. Right. You know, they 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 talk a little bit about his connection with the labor theory of value and with Ricardo. But but he's he's an important thinker. So or an influential thinker. So 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 they stick him in there. But it's very uneasy. But Rothbard fits him right in. Um, uh, you know, among, among the classical economists. Well, in the earlier chapters here on Marx, he, uh, he talks about the early influences, the earliest types of Marxist thought. And there's actually, you know, if anyone who's read Rothbard in the progressive era knows he hates a reformer, he hates a Puritan, he hates a busybody. Uh, he goes back to the Anabaptists in the 16th century and says, you know, a lot of this comes from millennialism, this idea that we're going to have paradise on earth. And so what we think of as a deeply secular ideology actually has uh, religious millennialist roots. Yeah, you know, no doubt about it. Marx was a millennialist. Um, and some of that is in the classical economists, that this whole idea that the, the, class, the capitalist economy was, was tending toward a stationary state. Not only was that sort of in Smith, but especially in Ricardo, but it was also in Mill, and it was all—it's also even in—you in, can find a little bit of it in Marshall, um, Alfred Marshall, who supposedly took the best of the Austrians and combined it with with Ricardian economics, um, and who was also grossly overrated. Yeah, and he mentions Marshall a few points in this book. This idea that uh, 
he combines the marginal revolution and the Ricardian cost theory of demand and utility, but somehow he, I guess he just gets that on one side of the equation. Alfred Marshall's a separate thing, but but um, you know Marshall certainly has a, a huge name in the 20th century, and I, and I suppose in your view and Rothbard's view, undeserved. Yeah, absolutely undeserved. Um, what he did was to focus on 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 the long run. Um, as Ricardo did, and to say, well, you know, the Austrians are right for day-to-day -day prices, but the really important prices are the, are, are the long-run prices. But of course, all we have are day-to-day -day prices. When you go to Walmart, no one knows or cares about long-run prices. All you care about is, what do I have to pay today? And what is the opportunity cost of purchasing this good at this price? Sure. And that certainly applies to toilet paper, but even houses. I mean, at some point people say, I can't wait for this housing market to go up or down to sell or buy, right? I, I, I need a house. Right. 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 People aren't speculating on, well, what's going to be the permanent price in a few years? Okay. That, that's, you yeah. know, that, that's an economist model and it's fine to reason in those terms for certain purposes. But um, to say that that's, those prices are more real in some sense than day-to-day -day prices is completely wrong. Menger, Bombaver, Mises, um, Hayek, you know, Rothbard, they all try to explain prices that we pay on real markets in real time. Yeah, and I've had some previous shows with people like Seyfedean Amus or uh, Jeff Booth, where, and this is this is how we puncture this ridiculous thinking about deflation, this idea that people are going to sit around and wait for the next iPhone, which is going to be better and cheaper. Well, maybe they'll wait a little bit, but for the most part, at some point, you go buy an iPhone, and, and deflation isn't part of your thinking. No, exactly. And, and, the, and by the way, the more people that wait, the faster the price falls. To, to, to a point where people say, hey, it's not going to fall any further, or I'm not going to risk it trying the falling further. I'm going to buy it now. It's cheap. And, and uh, you know, in my view, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to purchase it. So deflations never are, you know, turned into a spiral where all prices fall to zero. Mm -hmm. that's, that's absurd. Well, what's interesting is Rothbard goes into the idea of the French Revolution as another precursor to Marx and that this idea that you took something religious, you make it secular and that the dialectic, which we're all tired of hearing about, becomes material rather than spiritual. Yeah. So with Marx, um, you know, he picked out of the air this whole idea of the mode of production, basically technology, that when technology changes, OK, and we don't know, of course, he never says how it changes, but when it changes, Everything else changes. The so-called superstructure changes. The, the production relations change. That is the relationships between the, the people who produce, the, the people who are employed. That changes. And then that all changes art, religion, um, family relationships, and so on. So, so what, what Marx did was, was to, you know, to, to put ideas as sort of the secretion of, of, of these, you know, of technology. But, but, the, but as Rothbard points out, where does technology come from? It's based on ideas. Mm -hmm. It's a mental process originally. Yes, right. So there's this middle section here, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant when uh, Rothbard is explaining how the, the core concepts of exchange, uh, division of labor, specialization. I mean, this is what exchange is all about, which Mises would call yes. social cooperation. That's what makes us healthier and wealthier over time. You know, Marx views all this as a tragedy because man is alienated from his nature. And this idea that, you know, we think of communism as communitarian, but yet it's actually in, the, in Rothbard's rendering, it's 
you're talking about letting man be free to develop all of his faculties and somehow he's going to sit around all day and not have to work for a a market uh, buyer. He's not going to have to work for a boss and he's going to be able to develop his poetry or something because he's so brilliant. But but instead he has to work down at the auto factory all day just to get by. So the whole thing is very inhuman. Absolutely. And and the whole idea is just crazy. The idea of alienation. Um, alienation isn't someone feeling um, alienated from other people or, you know, alienated from uh, their, their true nature. Alienation for Marx was a material thing. That is that under capitalism, you did not consume the product of your labor. You sold it on a market. It was alienated from you. And Marx wants to get rid of that. And that's that's the division of labor. That's specialization. That's what makes us human and and, and gives us civilization. And so he, he was looking forward to a period of, of communism where you have people just, you know, being, uh, you know, a, sh- a shepherd in the morning, um, doing art in the afternoon, writing poetry at night, um, and not, as you said, not not interacting with any other human beings. And even beyond that, he talked about a beyond communism stage in which People basically don't do anything, and, and so, so the the whole productive apparatus would just break down. Yeah, it's remarkable. It, it sounds like the exact opposite of entrepreneurship, the idea of serving your fellow man by creating value and then becoming wealthy, hopefully, in the process. This is mm-hmm. 180 degrees opposite that. Well, there is no fellow man because it's only mankind. So, you know, where, whereas uh, Hegel looked on the world spirit as unfolding in time over history, um, uh, Marx, you know, made it material and, and it was it just mankind fulfilling itself, um, you know, the, the sort of collective blob. But of course, at least at the outset, Marx was opposed to any kind of gradualism or incrementalism. I guess Engels helps introduce that a little bit because everything that Marx is writing about here uh, assumes some sort of superabundant production first. Well, I, what, Marx is, what Marx says is that the um, that, that socialism will come with the inexorability of the laws of nature, so that no matter what we do. Um, feudalism is going to give way eventually to capitalism because of feudalism's inner contradictions, and the same will be true of capitalism giving way to socialism and then eventually communism. That that's the, the materialist, you know, dialectic, and um, that that was Marx Marx's view of it. Well, I love this phrase that Murray Rothbard used uh, to describe Marx. He says he thinks there's a law of history, quote unquote, which means, of course. Um, Marxism or communism is scientific, it's inevitable, and and that's basically what progressives believe today. I mean, whether they call themselves communists or not, there's this sort of deterministic arc to their worldview that things are happening inexorably, nothing can stop it. And I hate to say it, Joe, but I think we see that even in Austro-Libertarian circles sometimes, this idea that uh, freedom and peace are going to break out all over thanks to uh, technology or deflation or, or Bitcoin or whatever you might have, and that uh, we don't have to worry too much about this because it's natural and, and inevitable. When in fact, I think uh, uh, maybe a more hard-boiled Rothbardian look at history says, hey, we can go backwards, folks. Yeah, absolutely. We, we go backwards. There are instances throughout history in which is retrogression. Um, all of social evolution is is a struggle. I mean, Mises saw this, Rothbard saw this, uh, and this whole, it's really anti-human to say that that we're you know on this this um, linear 
pro- progressive line where we're going to be moving in, in one direction, whether it be towards communism, as the progressives would have it, or as the libertarians would have it, towards uh, you know greater technology giving us greater freedom uh, and uh, you know undermining the state. I mean, it, it, it takes the human being out of the equation. The human mind is taken out of the equation, and with it, ideology. Ideology is the key. Okay, people have to have the correct ideology for us to move in the correct direction. So ideas are going to run the world, not technology. Exactly. Well, I wonder how much uh, we should touch on this idea of Marx's character. Murray always likes to bring that up. He, you know, the, he doesn't like the great man theory, but when someone's a bad man, he, he likes to use that uh, to perhaps bring them down a peg or two. And I wonder to what extent our listeners are familiar. There's a great article, maybe we'll link to it from, uh, that was on lourockwell.com's blog. Uh, you know, despite Marx's success in life as a, an influential person, and his actually relatively comfortable uh, financial life throughout the various countries he lived in, sometimes kicked out, by the way, um, People may not know he had horrible skin problems. He had sort of you know, these huge boils or carbuncles and carbuncles. Uh, yeah, yeah, people have theorized that this uh, this sort of anger at his condition might have had a lot to do with his worldview. Supposedly, he once once said, and it might be apocryphal, um, "The capitalists will pay for my carbuncles," something like that. Mm. Well, that but I guess what interests yeah. me, Joe, is that I think libertarians and a lot of people have often said that socialism and communism are rooted in the psychology of the individual, uh, you know, envy or anger. Yeah, I, I, I feel like human beings are fallible. We're not pure spirit. We're not pure mind. Um, we're not purely logical. Um, we have the capacity to, 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 be lo- to be logical. We have the capacity to be critical and, and to critically analyze different theories. But, but, but our, you know, our physical condition, our economic condition, those things do come into it. You don't have to be a materialist to believe that, 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 that the formation of the individual's personality, um, which is, is material. I mean, it's, it's brought about by, by the property or re- it's reflecting the property that he or she owns, um, that the, the, these, in the, you know, the all, all things that influence human beings in their lifetimes, you know, are encapsulated in their, in their thinking. Well, we'll leave it with this, Joe. You you spent your whole life engrossed in economics, including economic history and theory. Uh, you knew Murray Rothbard. You worked with him. He, you were colleagues. So it's easy to understand why uh, this sort of uh, large two volumes, nine hundred pages, interests and fascinates you. But you know, give us the case for why a layperson who's just perhaps somewhat interested in the Mises Institute or Austrian economics or Rothbard should give this a go. Because it is a great narrative. Um, as, as you pointed out before, there, you know, he talks about the individuals, their backgrounds, how their religions I- influence them. He, uh, he, he's just a great I, I don't, uh, storyteller. And um, it's it, it just a one. It's a wonderful read. And it's a painless way to learn economics, in particular, Austrian economics. Yeah, that's so true. You yeah. can learn a lot of economics on the fly with this book, just like you can learn a lot of economics with Guido Halsun's biography of Mises. So, Absolutely. Yes. All that said, we're going to link to it, folks. Uh, I encourage you to give this a try if you like history, if you like economics. Uh, you can read it free in a beautiful PDF form on our website, or you can purchase it uh, from the Mises Institute. Uh, I, I really think you're going to benefit from it if you do. And if you like the kind of historical stuff that Patrick Newman's been working on, the progressive era, if you like revisionist history, I think this is going to be right up your alley. So all that said, Joe Slurd, I want to thank you a million for your time today. And ladies and gentlemen, have a great week. Thank you, Jeff. 
The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org. <laughs>